Welcome. I'm, um, uh, in light of reading that scripture, I'm very much so, uh, very much so convicted um, reading that particular passage. Um, most Saturday nights I sleep really, 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 really great. Um, I don't prep my sermons on Saturdays. Uh, some of my pastor buddies, like, they go into, like, preacher mode at, at like, 3 or 4 o'clock on Saturdays and start, like, getting ready to preach. And I just like Saturday too much to do that. And, like, no, I don't. I, don't. I finish my sermons on Friday mornings, and then I, I pretty much party all weekend and then come to church every Sunday, and it's great. And, um, but this, this particular passage... Um, Man, it uh, it kept me up. It kept me up bad last night. Um, went to bed at like nine, and then woke up at about three a.m. Going, I can't, I can't get this off my mind. Um, I can't get it out of my heart. I'm just, you know, like when, not to liken myself to Saint Paul exactly, but you know when Paul says uh, he preached with fear and trembling. I. I just feel, um, well, very much so sober-minded about who I'm talking about today, namely the Lord Jesus and um, a real reverence to speak on his behalf. And that um, it's a big deal what we do, isn't it, to call ourselves Christian. It's, it's great. So I'm Filled with great news today. I don't know if it's going to come out right, but uh, good thing he wrote it down in the Bible. And this is consistent every time. A sermon is just an attempt to expound on something perfect. So there is no inerrant sermon. There's no inerrant theology. There's no inerrant man. But there is an inerrant Bible. And so you can read it again later in case I miss it. You can work it out amongst yourselves. All right. So, um, yeah. So Luke chapter 10, go ahead and go there in your Bible. We're looking specifically at our, uh, one of the main pieces of why we exist as a church and that is to love people. And so a perfect passage would be what we just heard read in our liturgy, the good Samaritan on being loving people. And so, um, when the world thinks of Christians being loving people ought to be right at the very top of the list. When you think Christian, you ought to think loving people. After all, John 3, 16, everybody knows that verse. Even if you've never darkened the door of a church, you've probably seen it at an end zone somewhere, maybe not in Seattle, maybe in Atlanta, but it's in an end zone somewhere that says God so loved the world. And if you haven't seen that one, you've at least heard some form of John's remark about Jesus or God himself saying God is what? God is God is love, right? So those who would come after God and as disciples of the Lord Jesus, loving people should be what accompanies those kinds of, that, that, those kinds of people. And yet at the same time, in many times and in many places, this just isn't the case. Rather, some Christians have the reputation for being rude, mean, judgmental, stingy, lazy, inconsiderate, grumpy, unkind, uncaring, selfish, on and on. These are also words that describe how many in our city feel about those who would call themselves Christian. Loving is not always the word that's used to describe Christians. And if you just do a little bit of church history, yeesh, it's bad. There's a lot of unloving days by those who would call themselves Christian. 
And this can be for any number of reasons, really. Uh, For some, and I would probably add for many in society, in our society today, why this is the case is that we oftentimes as Christians have a very much so a fundamental just misunderstanding of the gospel of grace altogether. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, referred to uh, in his book called The Cost of Discipleship. He refers to it as, as cheap grace. That is essentially cheap grace says something like, well, I have faith in Jesus and therefore I'm saved. So how I live between now and the end doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter how I treat others. It doesn't how I live my life. I'm justified by faith. After all, that's what Paul said. I have faith in Jesus. The rest is kind of, you can try if you want, but I mean, justification is the big idea. Sanctification is for people that, well, don't have anything else to do. And that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel altogether. So we need to be strongly reminded that the Bible vehemently condemns any kind of theology or lifestyle that would take the grace of God as license to sin against God or to withhold neighborly love. And this isn't just like a one-off thing like in the Good Samaritan passage. It's over and over again throughout the entire Old Testament. What was the ministry of the prophets? How can you boil it down? The prophets are constantly pulling people back to how God has willed his people to live. And then you see it again and again throughout the New Testament. The apostles are constantly going, hey, don't go over there. Don't live that way. Come back and live this way, a lifestyle that is congruent with receiving the grace of God. So, you see, in our Western privatized, individualized, easy believism, I can't hardly even get it out today, this version of Christianity that is rampant in our country is foreign to Scripture. And it's what God himself condemns. Because it comes from a place in the human heart that says something like, I was worth Good Friday. But anybody that squares with what happened on Good Friday certainly doesn't conclude, well, therefore I can live a life however I want. If you come to see the cross for what the cross really is, it demands a life that follows cruciform. So the world thinks we're unloving because we abuse the grace of God and then don't dish it out to everybody else. That's one way. Others, we struggle with loving people just because people are hard to love. Even the people we like are hard to love. That's just real easy. Needs no explanation. Moving along. Three, uh, what I've... (laughs) Truly, I didn't write anything more than that in my notes. And so... The third thing, though, I think that really why we struggle with loving other people is for the vast majority of Christians that I sit down with as a pastor over and over again, here's what comes up. Most Christians believe God loves the world in a generic sense. God loves the church, certainly. God loves me as an individual. I don't know. I struggle with that. Can God love me, the real me? 
the me that nobody else sees, the stuff that goes through my head when no one else sees, the real me. Can God really love me? And when we don't understand that reality, well, then certainly that affects whether we're going to actually be able to give out the love of God horizontally. Does that make sense? And so if you understand that God loves you as you are and not as you should be, that's the first domino to fall that then translates into how we live our lives in the day-to-day, hopefully as loving people. And so as we look at this passage on the Good Samaritan, you're going to see words show up that's used throughout Scripture that are very unpopular in Seattle today. Words like obedience, lordship, repentance, submission. Sheesh. Those are not bad words. Those are all words that belong at the very heart of the Christian gospel. They go right alongside words like love, grace, forgiveness. Kindness, compassion, and Savior. So obedience to God and submitting to Jesus as Lord, church, is not the opposite of grace. It is the outcome. Does that make sense? I'll repeat it. A lifestyle of holiness, sacrifice, Self-denial and love of neighbor is not the antithesis of grace. It is the result of rightly understanding, believing, receiving, and applying the grace of God. Scripture is clear from cover to cover, beginning with God covering Adam's sin in the garden, to the covenant made with Abraham, to the covenant with Noah, to the covenant of David, that we are saved by grace and through faith. And simultaneously, we are to live lives that correspond to that reality. Anything less, Jesus condemns in John 15, for example, as being not attached to the vine. We must bear fruit is in keeping with repentance. It's a very unpopular thing. But it is the gospel. And it will save you. So, this is about living out our identity. If you want the manuscript, by the way, email me. It's 32 pages. I'm on page 6 right now. You're like, good grief. All right, I'll just, all right let's do this. If I move away from... All right, here we go. And behold, this is Luke 10, verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. First, behold. You have to stop right when Luke says behold. It's an important word that's used throughout Scripture. It's kind of one of those words that you don't hear anywhere unless you're reading the Bible. And behold, this happened. Like The word behold, Luke uses on purpose. It's a signaling word in the Greek. It's a word that says, look, stop, slow down, really get this, pay attention, don't skip this scene. What's about to happen is about to shake the earth to its foundation. It's one of those mighty Bible words. Behold, this word's going to change your life. If you hear it, if you believe it, if you receive it, if you understand this, this is going to change you. That's what Luke's communicating just with the word behold. 
You're going to have to listen fast today. All right, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. The lawyer would have been a Pharisee, would have been a, a man, well, like a Pharisee, a man, an expert trained in the law of God. He would know the Old Testament forward and backward. All 687 laws in the Old Testament memorized memorized. The parts of the Bible that you forgot exist, he has memorized. Okay, He is really devout. Like, as devout as it could possibly be. This kind of deep covenantal believer. He knows the stories, he lives the life, and he helps enforce the law of God in the local community. He goes before Jesus and wants to put Jesus to the test. Why does he want to put Jesus to the test? Because Jesus is not living up to everyone's religious expectations as to what the Messiah should be doing. The Messiah should not hang out with the prostitutes. The Messiah should not be hanging out with the drunks. The Messiah should not be walking amongst the rebels, forgiving sins like this. Uh-uh. The Messiah should usher in the kingdom of God, put Rome in their place, and keep us together, okay? That's what the Messiah should be doing. Jesus isn't doing any of that. In fact, in one occasion in John's gospel, they want to make Jesus king, and Jesus turns it down. Why? Because he considered it a demotion. When you're the son of God, anything else is a demotion. I don't want to be your king of this neighborhood. I'm king of the universe. Thank you, though. So, Really got to stick to this. Okay, so he stood up. He tests Jesus, saying this, Teacher, which to go before a rabbi, to stand before him, and then address him as teacher was a sign of incredible respect in, in the first century world. So he goes before Jesus, Teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? eternal life. Can human beings live forever? How can I secure that here? How can I secure that reality there? Can I, can I, what do I have to do? I want to live forever. I want to live forever. That's a really good question, especially to Jesus, who happens to be the resurrection and the life. So, excellent question. What do I need to do? Can I earn eternal life? Is it a, do I have to do enough good works to tip the scales? How do I, how do I secure this? Well, clearly this guy didn't read Paul because, you know, that wasn't written yet, so that's important. All right, so what do I do to inherit eternal life? Here's Jesus' response. He always answers a question with a question. You ever notice that about Jesus all the time? It's brilliant. He asks him two questions. Well, what's written in the law? And how do you read it? What's written? How do you read it? What's written? How do you read it? What's written down? What do you have memorized? Give me a summary. That's what he's asking for. Summarize the Old Testament. And he answers, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the Shema. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Hebrew men recite it twice a day to this day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Then he jumps to Leviticus 19, and you love your neighbor as yourself. The summary of the gospel is not love God and love people. That is a summary of the law. Now hang with me. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Do it. Does that bother anybody in here? So far, Reformed Calvinist Presbyterians justified by faith. We love Galatians kind of stuff. Does that bother anybody? Anybody? He could have come back with a Billy Graham crusade answer. How do I get eternal life? Invite me into your heart. Pray the sinner's prayer. Walk an aisle. Repent. Be baptized. One of those would have been a really easy answer. Jesus goes, yeah, do Moses. Do that. Do that. Anybody, does that make anybody nervous? Kept me up at 3 a.m. I don't even like reading Moses, much less obeying him. Goodness. All right, so, all right. You answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Now, remember, we've got Jewish Jesus talking to a Jewish lawyer, a man committed to the covenant of God. Jesus does not abolish the law. Jesus fulfills it. You got to see that. You can't see Jesus coming on the scene and going, yeah, you know what, Moses, that's over. It's all over. (laughs) No, Jesus shows up on the scene and he goes, I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill it. Think, this is why we revere Jesus the way we revere him. He obeyed Moses' law perfectly. He did not attempt to do it. He did it. Fulfilled. Meaning, he filled up the cup. The cup is the law, and Jesus fills it. I did it. That's what it looks like to live the law perfectly. He did it. He is not at odds with Moses. He's just better than Moses. He is awesome, and you owe him your life. All right. So do this and you'll live. Live out your identity as one of God's children, lawyer. You call yourself a Hebrew. You know the Bible. Do it. Do it. Over and over again, you'll see Jesus say, do it. Do it. Don't just be like what Jesus' little brother James tells us. Don't be hearers only but be doers of the word. You actually have to do something. You actually have to do something. You actually have to pray. You actually have to give. You actually have to serve. You actually have to repent. You actually have to live a life that corresponds to going, yeah, this is not just head knowledge. I have to do something. I have to radically do something. I have to alter my life. He goes, do this. Do it. Do it. This is very uncomfortable. But this is where Jesus is calling disciples. Not to a privatized religion, but to something that is public, something that actually changes our day-to-day relationships. 
So do it and you'll live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Which is a funny question because he just summarized the law. And you know, when he got out the first part, he was thinking, I've got this answer. How do you summarize the law? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and mind and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And he's thinking, as soon as he says the second one, he's going, dang it, I wish I didn't say that. Because right there, he becomes convicted by his own words. Right there on the spot, he goes, well, hang on. So who's my neighbor? Ah, uh, <laughs> I'm not doing that very well. Who's my neighbor? The who's my neighbor question is a boundary question. How far do I have to go? Do I have to love my mom? Yeah. Do I have to love my, my wife? Yeah. Do I have to love my, my next door neighbor? Yeah. Yeah. How, how far does it go? Other Jews, right? Other Jews, right? How far do I have to go? Certainly it can't be the Certainly it can't be somebody that worships a false god or something like that. How far do I have to go? It's a question of how far, how much, how inconvenient does this have to get? What's the bare minimum that I have to do in order to get the maximum amount of eternal life? How far? But he, desiring to justify himself, asked the question. Jesus replied with, of course, a parable because he's Jesus, and that's how Jesus does things. A man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho. So to go down, every, in, in the, if you're leaving Jerusalem, you have to go down. It's on a mountain. And so it's about 2,500 feet above sea level. And to go down from Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 17-mile journey. So he's saying a man is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In the first century, this was called the blood pass. And hence the, the robbers, thieves, gangs hang out in the crags on this very narrow, very narrow path going down into Jericho. And then they jump out and they, they rob people. They harm people. So we have one man going down the road and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So the man's in the gutter. Literally, it's over. This guy's going to die by nightfall. Now by chance, here we are, Jesus telling a lawkeeper, now by chance, who shows up? A priest was going down that road. Thank God, a priest. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You see, you got to read the parables really slowly or you'll miss so much. Use your imagination. The man's in the ditch, bleeding out, a gasping, heaving mound of broken flesh. Naked, has nothing. He knows it's over. He looks up and sees a priest. Why would he see a priest? Well, uh, scholars tell us that roughly half of the priests in the first century actually lived in the city of Jericho. They do all their work in the temple over in Jerusalem, then they go back to Jericho, okay? And they would rotate uh, for uh, one week at a time. A new priest comes in every week and does the temple rituals, okay? So a priest is on his way home, and he's identifiable by his priestly garments. They know this is a there's a priest. Oh my gosh, God heard my prayers. Here he is. I'm dying here in the gutter. God sent not just a good person. Oh my gosh, he sent his 
best one. He sent me a priest. This is great. And the priest saw him, did the math, and found the crosswalk and went to the other side of the road. You might, if you if you like your Old Testament, Josh is going to go teach Old Testament theology. If you know your Old Testament, you know that priests aren't allowed to come in contact with a corpse unless it's a family member. You can't; they can't be among the dead. But everybody knew in the first century that the law should be suspended when it comes to matters of life and death. That's why Jesus says, if an ox falls in a ditch on a, on a Saturday, are you really going to let it die there? Of course not. If a man with a withered hand cries out and says, God, please be merciful to me on Saturday, is it really wrong for me to heal him? Come on. You guys are straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You guys are concerned about all these little things in the law, and you're neglecting the weightier matters of justice and love and grace and the whole point of why you're God's children. You're not doing it. You're finding convenient ways to justify being unloving toward other people. You're too busy, and it costs too much, and ministry's too messy. That's what Jesus comes at us with, right? The priest passed by on the other side, and the man thought to himself, I'm going to die. So likewise, a Levite, this was a man that would have assisted the priests in the, in the temple. They didn't do the actual sacrificing of the animals, but they did all of the arranging and the ongoing worship in the temple daily. So this man, a Levite, belonged to the tribe of Levi, where we get our book Leviticus, right? He knows the verse on love your neighbor as yourself. It's in Leviticus 19. So a Levite also coming down the same road, sees the same situation, sees the same man gasping for air, and he too found the crosswalk and passed by on the other side, neglecting the man. But a Samaritan, here comes the third one. You've probably seen the hospitals named after him, right? The Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Okay, so a Samaritan, when, just so you know, when the lawyer heard this part of the story, the lawyer would have heard the word Samaritan and gone, when a Samaritan saw him coming, he would have gone, oh man, the Samaritan's going to be way worse than the priest or the Levite. The Samaritan's going to go over and finish him off. Samaritans and Jews hate each other. Read your Old Testament. It's the whole thing. They absolutely hate each other. Even Jesus' disciples asked Jesus himself when they came across Samaritans, what did he say? What did they ask him? Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on these people? We hate these guys, right? And Jesus is like, no. No, we don't call down fire on people. No, I'm here to save the world. Have you paid attention to anything I've been saying? Right. The Samaritan enters the story as the one that the Jews would absolutely despise. The despised one. They disagreed in their theology. They disagreed in lifestyle. They disagreed in everything. And they have 
bad history. The Samaritan shows up. As he journeyed, he came to where he was. If you you got to mark every little word in this thing. He came to him. He came to him. He ignored the crosswalk. He went to the man. He went to him physically. He physically does something. Why? Because his compassion was now going to take the shape of wine and band-aids and tape and putting a man on a donkey and help. He actually came to him. Do you know if you want to see Seattle saved and reached with the gospel of Jesus, it's going to take people who are gripped with gut-wrenching compassion that will actually move toward the mess, that will move toward the broken, the bloody, the not good enough, the throwaway, the the negligent. It's moving toward those who cannot benefit us. It's one thing to give to somebody you like. It's another thing to move toward somebody who can't pay you back. Which is precisely what the Lord Jesus commands us elsewhere in Luke's gospel. Throw parties, and when you do, invite those who can't pay you back. You see, God is pushing us. I really believe God is pushing us as a church, as a community, to not just huddle together, though we should, and pray for each other, encourage each other, bless each other, build each other. You better believe it. But we better be looking up and looking out at the world around us that desperately needs to know there's a God in heaven who has done something to reconcile men and women to God. And it needs to take on the shape not just of a gospel message, but a gospel lifestyle. That is, they need to be able to see it, not just in our creeds, but in the actual doing, in our deeds of tangibly, physically showing the gospel born of compassion. He did not see an inconvenience. He did not see a bloody mess. He did not just see a burden. He did not see a nuisance. He saw a man, a man made in God's image, a man that had hopes, a man that had dreams, a man that had a family, a man that goes to birthday parties, a man that had a job, a man that was shattered. He saw the man. He didn't just see a problem. You see? This is what God's doing when he's reconciling the world to himself. He's giving us his eyes for his creation. That is, we don't see people as projects. We see them as image bearers, worthy of love, worthy of grace, worthy of the same compassion that we would be willing to receive from the Lord Jesus himself. Listen, all Jesus is asking us to do at the end of the day is to simply hand out the grace we're willing to take from him. That's all. Well, that's ridiculously, that's a big amount. Yeah. Yeah. Just give out as much grace as you're willing to take. He taught us this in the Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. All he's teaching us to do is go, yeah, yeah, all the grace you need from God, go give it to somebody else too. Don't let it dead end on you. Become the conduit, not a cul-de-sac. compassion. So here's what it looked like. He went to him and he bound up his wounds and he poured on oil and wine. You see how expensive this is? This actually cost him something financially. It was extremely messy. The man's a bloody, broken, naked mess. I mean, it's, it's as bad as it can get. It cost him something. 
You know, ministry is expensive and ministry is always messy. Read your Old Testament. It's a bloodbath in the temple for a reason. It's just that way. And it's not because God is bad. It's because sin costs an enormous amount. And thanks be to God, he paid that. So, he pours on oil and wine, and then he sets him on his own animal. Notice here, he's providing for him financially. He's even providing for his transportation. Healthcare? Whoops. All right. Uh, set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care. He brought him to an inn, which was the closest place where he could put him up. And he actually doesn't just check out. It says he took care of him for a bit. So he checks the guy in. He goes way out of his way. And the next day, he took two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. A two denarii right there would have been two weeks stay in the hotel or the inn. Saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I'll pay you when I come back. So he's going to take on the financial debt. For a stranger. Does anybody else just feel ridiculously convicted reading the Bible, or is it just me? Okay, a lot of like these looks like, oh, sheesh. Can we go home and watch the Hawks? Yes, we can, but first, you will be guilted for a few more minutes. All right, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, I'll pay you back, charge it to my account. Charge it to my account. Then Jesus asked him this question. So, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? What do you think? After that story, who do you think was uh, neighborly? Well, (laughs) he thought for a moment. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, will you go and do likewise? You see, it's about meeting other people's needs. It's about extending mercy. It's about taking care. These are all words that are bound up in this text going, this is what it looks like to be one of God's children, to have God's heart. Go and do it. Go and do it. So then the question becomes, well, that was the summary of the law. How on earth do I ever How do I get the strength? How do I get the will? How do I get the power? Pastor, I know you. You're selfish. There's no way you do this for every broke down person that you see every day. How do we do this? Where do we get this? Well, we don't get it from moralism and do-goodism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go, you know what? You're right. You're right. I should be more generous. I should care more. I should be more compassionate. But life is busy. I I should try harder. I should try harder. You're right. I should try harder. The gospel condemns try harder theology completely. Good Friday was enough. Good Friday, Jesus says, it is finished. I have paid it in full. So where do you get the heart, the drive, the desire? You get it from the Christ who hung for you on a cross. The Christ who saw you in your lowly estate when you were broke down, when your soul was shattered before God and you were about to die. 
And Jesus comes and Jesus saves your life. Jesus bears your guilt. Jesus bears your sins. Jesus bears your shame. Jesus takes on your fear. Listen, if you hear today going, I need to walk this out a little harder. I need to try harder. You're not hearing the essence of the gospel. Jesus bore the guilt you feel when you read this text. So where do you get the heart? It's through abiding in the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's through abiding in the Lord Jesus. It's by knowing that he loves you on your best day and your worst day. You get it by dwelling together in authentic Christian community that goes beyond coffee or hawks or happy hour or whatever. But it happens when Christians ask one another the real question of, how are you doing? Not what are you doing? How are you doing? How's your heart? Where's your soul? Are you connected with Jesus? Have you been in Scripture? Do you know He loves you? These kinds of questions. So next week we're going to do our serve day where we're going to sign people up to get involved in all kinds of things and in our church and around our city. I want you this week to be praying about that, thinking about that, asking God in your life groups and among hanging out this week, asking God, God, where do you want us to serve? How do you want us to give? How do you want us to participate? Ask this week. Take a week and just reflect on it going, God, how can you create more of a compassionate heart in me? And it'll come through, like I said a moment ago, sitting with Jesus long enough to hear that he loves you as you are. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for forgiving us of our sins. Thank you for our friends, our family called Redemption Church. We do ask that you would work powerfully in our church. Would you create in us hearts of compassion, hearts of conviction, hearts that genuinely care about the well-being of our neighbors, both those that live close to us and those that we see walking down the street every single day. Would you stir up in us love and grace and mercy toward the least of these? God, I thank you for your true word. Would you help us to not just be hearers but to be doers of your word that Jesus might be known in the city of Seattle. We pray all these things in his good and strong and perfect name. Amen.